section 12 of the black prophet by william carleton this librivox recording is in the public domain section 12 sarah who had never yet spoken to mave turned her black mellow eyes from her to her lover and from him to her alternately she then dropped them for a time on the ground and again looked round her with something like melancholy impatience her complexion was high and flushed and her eyes sparkled with unaccustomed brilliancy it's not right two people should run such a risk on our account said con looking towards sarah here's a young woman who has come to nurse tend and take care of us for which may god bless her and protect her it's sarah mcgowan donald dhu's daughter think of mave sullivan said sarah think only of mave sullivan she's in danger ha but as for me suppose i should take the fever and die may god forbid poor girl exclaimed con it would leave us all a sad heart dear mave don't stop here every minute is dangerous sarah went over to the bedside and putting her hand gently upon his forehead said don't speak to pity me i can't bear pity anything at all but pity from you say you don't care what becomes of me or whether i die or not but don't pity me it is extremely difficult to describe sarah's appearance and state of mind as she spoke this her manner towards con was replete with tenderness and the most earnest and anxious interest while at the same time there ran through her voice a tone of bitter feeling an evident consciousness of something that pressed strongly on her heart which gave a marked and startling character to her language mave for a moment forgot everything but the interest which sarah and the mention of her excited she turned gently round from mary who had been speaking to her and fixing her eyes on sarah examined her with pardonable curiosity from head to foot nor will she be blamed we trust if even then and there the scrutiny was not less close in consequence of it having been known to her that in point of beauty and symmetry of figure they had stood towards each other for some time past in the character of rivals sarah who had on without stockings a pair of small slippers a good deal the worse for wear had risen from the bedside and now stood near the fire directly opposite the only little window in the house and consequently in the best light it afforded mave's glance though rapid was comprehensive but she felt it was sufficient the generous girl on contemplating the wild grace and natural elegance of sarah's figure and the singular beauty and wonderful animation of her features instantly in her own mind surrendered all claim to competition and admitted to herself that sarah was without exception the most perfectly beautiful girl she had ever seen her last words too and the striking tone in which they were spoken arrested her attention still more so that she passed naturally from the examination of her person to the purport of her language 
we trust that our readers know enough of human nature to understand that this examination of sarah upon the part of mave sullivan was altogether an involuntary act and one which occurred in less time than we have taken to write any one of the lines in which it is described mave who perceived at once that the words of sarah were burdened by some peculiar distress could not prevent her admiration from turning into pity without exactly knowing why but in consequence of what sarah had just said she feared to express it either by word or look lest she might occasion her unnecessary pain she consequently after a slight pause replied to her lover you must not blame me dear con for being here i came to give whatever poor attendance i could to nancy here and to such of you as want it while you're sick i came indeed to stay and nurse you all if you will let me and you won't be sorry to hear it in spite of all that has happened that i have the consent of my father and mother for so doing a faint smile of satisfaction lit up her lover's features but this was soon overshadowed by his apprehension for her safety sarah who had for about a half-minute been examining mave on her part now started and exclaimed with flashing eyes and we may add a bursting and distracted heart well mave sullivan i have often seen you but never so well as now you have goodness and truth in your face oh it's a pretty face a lovely face but why do you state a falsehood here for what you've just said is false i know it mave started and in a moment her pale face and neck were suffused by one burning blush at the idea of such an imputation she looked around her as if inquiring from all those who were present the nature of the falsehood attributed to her and then with a calm but firm eye she asked sarah what she could mean by such language you're after saying replied sarah that you come here to nurse nancy there now that's not true and you know it isn't you come here to nurse young con dalton and you come to nurse him because you love him no i don't blame you for that but i do for not saying so without fear or disguise for i hate both that wouldn't be altogether true either replied mave if i said so for i did come to nurse nancy and any others of the family that might stand in need of it as to con i'm neither ashamed to love him nor afeard to acknowledge it and i had no notion of stating a falsehood when i said what i did i tell you then sarah mcgowan that you've done me injustice if there appeared to be a falsehood in my words there was none in my heart that's truth i know i feel that that's truth replied sarah quickly but oh how wrong i am she exclaimed to mention that or anything else here that might distract him ah she proceeded addressing mave i did you injustice i feel i did but don't be angry with me for i acknowledge it why should i be angry with you replied mave you only spoke what you thought and this by all accounts is what you always do let us talk as little as possible here replied sarah the sole absorbing object of whose existence lay in dalton's recovery 
I will speak to you on your way home, but not here, not here. And while uttering the last words, she pointed to Dalton to intimate that further conversation might disturb him. Dear Mave, observed Mary, now rising from her chair, you are staying too long. Oh, for God's sake, don't stop. You can't dream of the danger you're in. But, replied Mave calmly, you know, Mary, that I came to stop and to do whatever I can do till the family comes around. You are too feeble to undertake anything, and might only get into a relapse if you attempted it. But then we have Sarah McGowan, she replied, who came as few would. None live in this day, I think, barring yourself and her, to stay with us, and to do anything that she can do for us all. May God forever bless her, for short as the time is, I think she has saved some of our lives. Condy's without a doubt. Maeve turned towards Sarah, and as she looked upon her, the tears started in her eyes. Sarah McGowan, said she, you are fond of truth, and you are right. I can't find words to thank you for doing what you did. God bless and reward you. She extended her hand as she spoke, but Sarah put it back. No, said she indignantly, never from you. Above all that's livin', don't you thank me? You, you, why, you aren't his wife yet, she exclaimed in a suppressed voice of deep agitation, and maybe you never will. You don't know what may happen, you don't know. She immediately seemed to recollect something that operated as a motive to restrain any exhibition of strong feeling or passion on her part, for all at once she composed herself, and sitting down merely said, Mave Sullivan, I'm glad you love truth, and I believe you do. I can't then receive any thanks from you, nor I won't, and I would tell you why, any place but here. I don't at all understand you, replied Mave, but for your care and attention to him, I am sure it's no harm to say, may God reward you, I will never forget it to you. While I have life, said Dalton feebly, and fixing his eyes upon Sarah's face, I for one won't forget her kindness. Kindness, she re-echoed. Ha ha, well, it's no matter, it's no matter. She saved my life, Mave. I'm lying here and hadn't even a drink of water, and there's no one else in the house. Mary there was out, and poor Nancy was raving and raging with illness and pain. But she, Sarah, was here to settle us, to attend us, to get us a drink whenever we wanted it, to raise us up, and to put it to our lips, and to let us down with as little pain as possible. Oh, how could I forget all this? Dear, dear Sarah, how could I forget this if I was to live a thousand years? Con's face, while he spoke, became animated with the enthusiasm of the feeling to which he gave utterance, and, as his eyes were fixed on Sarah with a suitable expression, there appeared to be a warmth of emotion in his whole manner, which a sanguine person might probably interpret in something beyond gratitude. Sarah, after he had concluded, looked upon him with a long, earnest, but uncertain gaze. So long, indeed, and so intensely penetrating was it, that the whole energy of her character might, for a time, be read clearly in the singular expression of her eyes. It was evident 
that her thoughts were fluttering between pleasure and pain, cheerfulness and gloom. But at length her countenance lost, by degrees, its earnest character, the alternate play of light and shadow over it ceased, and the gaze changed, almost imperceptibly, into one of settled abstraction. It might be, she said, as if thinking aloud, it might be, but time will tell. And in the meantime, everything must be done fairly, fairly. Still, if it shouldn't come to pass, if it should not, it would be better if I had never been born. But it may be, and time will tell. Maeve had watched her countenance closely, and without being able to discover the nature of the conflict that appeared in it, she went over, and placing her hand gently upon Sarah's arm, exclaimed, "'Don't blame me for what I'm going to say, Sarah, if you'll let me call you Sarah, but the truth is, I see that your mind is troubled. I wish to God I could remove that trouble, or that any one here could.' I am sure they all would, as willingly as myself. She is troubled, said Mary. I know by her manner that there's something distressing on her mind. Any earthly thing that we could do to relieve her we would. But I asked her, and she wouldn't tell me. It is likely that Mary's kindness, and especially Maeve's, so gently but so sincerely expressed, touched her as they spoke. She made no reply, however, but approached Mae with a slight smile on her face, her lips compressed, and her eyes, which were fixed and brilliant, floating in something that looked like moisture, and which might as well have been occasioned by the glow of anger as the impulse of a softer emotion, or perhaps, and this might be nearer the truth, as a conflict between the two states of feeling. For some moments she looked into Maeve's very eyes, and after a while she seemed to regain her composure and sat down without speaking. There was a slight pause occasioned by the expectation that she had been about to reply, during which Dalton's eyes were fixed upon her. In her evident distress she looked upon him. Their eyes met, and the revelation that that glance of anguish on the part of Sarah gave to him disclosed the secret oh my god he exclaimed involuntarily and unconsciously is this possible sarah felt that the discovery had been made by him at last and seeing that all their eyes were still upon her she rose up and approaching mave said it is true mave sullivan i am troubled mary i am troubled and as she uttered the words a blush so deep and so beautiful spread itself over her face and neck that the very females present were for the moment lost in admiration of her radiant youth and loveliness dalton's eyes were still upon her and after a little time he said sarah come to me she went to his bedside and kneeling bent her exquisite figure over him and as her dark brilliant eyes looked into his he felt the fragrance of her breath mingling with his own what is it said she you are too near me said he ah i feel i am she said shaking her head i mean he added for your own safety give me your hand dear sarah he took her hand and raising himself a little on his right side 
he looked upon her again and as he did so she felt a few warm tears falling upon it now he said lay me down again sarah a few moments of ecstatic tumult in which sarah was unconscious of anything about her past she then rose and sitting down on the little stool she wept for some minutes in silence during this quiet paroxysm no one spoke but when dalton turned his eyes upon mave sullivan she was pale as ashes mary who had noticed nothing particular in the incidents just related now urged mave to depart and the latter on exchanging glances with dalton could perceive that a feeble hectic had overspread his face she looked on him earnestly for a moment then paused as if in thought and going round to his bedside knelt down and taking his hand said con if there is any earthly thing that i can do to give ease and comfort to your mind i am ready to do it if it would relieve you forget that you ever saw me or ever ever knew me at all suppose i am not living that i am dead i say this dear con to relieve you from any pain or distress of mind that you may feel on my account believe me i feel everything for you and nothing now for myself whatever you do i tell you that a harsh word or thought from me you will never have mave while she spoke did not shed a tear nor was her calm sweet voice indicative of any extraordinary emotion sarah who had been weeping until the other began to speak now rose up and approaching mave said go mave sullivan go out of this dangerous house and you condy dalton heed not what she has said mave sullivan i think i understand your words and they make me ashamed of myself and of the thoughts that have been troubling me oh what am i when compared to you nothing nothing mave had on entering deposited the little matters she had brought for their comfort and mary now came over and placing her hand on her shoulder said sarah is right dear may for god's sake do not stay here oh think only think if you tuck this fever and that anything happened you come said sarah leave this dangerous place i will see you part of the way home you can do nothing here that i won't do and everything that i can do will be done her lover's eyes had been fixed upon her and with a feeble voice for the agitation had exhausted him he added his solicitations for her departure to theirs i hope i will soon be better dear mave and able to get up too but may god bless you and take care of you till then mave again went round and took his hand on which he felt a few tears fall i came here dear con she said to take care of you all and why need i be ashamed to say so to do all i could for yourself sarah here wishes me to speak the truth and why shouldn't i think of my words then con and don't let me or the thoughts of me occasion you one moment's unhappiness to see you happy is all the wish i have in this world she then bade them an affectionate farewell and was about 
to take her departure when sarah who had been musing for a moment went to dalton and having knelt on one knee was about to speak and to speak as was evident from her manner with great earnestness when she suddenly restrained herself clasped her hands with a vehement action looked distractedly from him to mave and then suddenly rising took mave's hand and said come away it's dangerous to stop where this fever is you ought to be careful of yourself you have friends that love you and that would feel for you if you were gone you have a kind good father a loving mother a loving mother that you could turn to and may turn to if ever you should have a sore heart a mother oh that blessed word what wouldn't i give to say that i have a mother many an outrage many a wild fit of passion many a harsh word too oh what mightn't i be now if i had a mother all the world thinks i have a bad heart that i'm without feelin but indeed mave sullivan i'm not without feelin and i don't think i have a bad heart you have not a bad heart replied mave taking her hand no one dear sarah could look into your face and say so no but i think so far from that your heart is both kind and generous i hope so she replied i hope i have now come you and leave this dangerous house besides i have something to say to you mave and she proceeded along the old causeway that led to the cabin and having got out upon the open road sarah stood now mave sullivan said she listen you do me only justice to say that i love truth and hate a lie or concealment of any kind i ax you now this you discovered a while ago that i love condy dalton isn't that true i wasn't altogether certain replied mave but i thought i did and now i think you do love him i do love him oh i do and why as you said should i be ashamed of it ay and it was my intention to tell you so the first time i'd see you and to give you fair notice that i did and that i'd leave nothing undone to win him from you well replied the other this is open and honest at all events that was my intention pursued sarah and i had for a short time other thoughts ay and worse thoughts my father was persuading me but i can't speak on that for he has my promise not to do so oh i'm nothing dear mave nothing at all to you i can't forget your words a while ago because i knew what you meant at the time when you said to con any earthly thing that i can do to give ease and comfort to your mind i am ready to do it if it would relieve you forget that you ever saw me or ever knew me now mave i've confessed to you that i love con dalton but i tell you not to trouble your heart by any thoughts of me my mind's made up as to what i'll do don't fear me i'll never cross you here i'm a lonely creature she proceeded bursting into bitter tears i'm without friends and relations or any one that cares at all about me don't say so replied mave i care about you and it's only now that people is beginning to know you but that's not all sarah if it's any consolation to you to know it know it 
Condy Dalton loves you. I loves you, Sarah McGowan. You may take my word for that. I am certain this day that what I say is true. Loves me, she exclaimed. Loves you, repeated Mave, is the word, and I have said it. I didn't suspect that when I spoke, she replied. Each looked upon the other, and both as they stood were as pale as death itself. At length Mave spoke. I have only one thought, Sarah, and that is how to make him happy, to see him happy. I can scarcely speak, replied Sarah. I wouldn't know what to say if I did. I am all confused. Mave, dear, forgive me. God bless you, replied Mave, for you are truth and honesty itself. God bless and you make him happy. Good-bye, dear Sarah. She put her hand into Sarah's and felt that it trembled excessively, but Sarah was utterly passive. She did not even return the pressure which she had received, and when Mave departed, she was standing in a reverie, incapable of thought, deadly pale and perfectly motionless. Chapter 25 Sarah Without Hope How Sarah returned to Dalton's cabin she herself knew not. Such was the tumult which the communication then made to her by Mave had occasioned in her mind, that the scene which had just taken place altogether appeared to her excited spirit like a troubled dream, whose impressions were too unreal and deceptive to be depended on for a moment. The reaction from the passive state in which Mave had left her was, to a temperament like hers, perfectly overwhelming. Her pulse beat high, her cheek burned, and her eye flashed with more than its usual fire and overpowering brilliancy, and with the exception of one impression alone, all her thoughts were so rapid and indistinct as to resemble the careering clouds which fly in tumult and confusion along the troubled sky with nothing stationary but the sun far above and which in this case might be said to resemble the bright conviction of dalton's love for her that mave's assurance had left behind it on re-entering the cabin without being properly conscious of what she either did or said she once more knelt by the side of Dalton's bed, and hastily taking his unresisting hand was about to speak, but a difficulty how to shape her language held her in a painful and troubled suspense for some moments, during which Dalton could plainly perceive the excitement, or rather rapture, by which she was actuated. At length a gush of hot and burning tears enabled her to speak, and she said, con dalton dear con is it true can it be true oh no no but then she says it is it true that you like me like me no no that word is too weak is it true that you love me but no it can't be there never was so much happiness intended for me and then if it should be true oh if it was possible how will i bear it what will i do what is to be the consequence? For my love for you is beyond all belief, beyond all that tongue can tell. I can't stand the struggle. My head is giddy. I scarcely know what I'm saying. Or is it a dream that 
I'll awaken from and find it false, false. Dalton pressed her hand and, looking tenderly upon her face, replied, Dear Sarah, forgive me. Your dream is both true and false. It is true that I like you, that I pity you, but you forbid me to say that. Well, it is true. I say that I like you, but I can't say more. The only girl I love, in the sense you mean, is Mave Sullivan. I could not tell you an untruth, Sarah, nor don't deceive yourself. I like you, but I love her. She started up, and in an instant dashed the tears from her cheeks, after which she said, I'm glad to know it. You have said the truth, the bitter truth. Aye, bitter it will prove, Condy Dalton, to more than me. My happiness in this world is now over forever. I never was happy, and it's clear that the doom is against me. I never will be happy. I am now free to act as I like. No matter what I do, it can't make me feel more than I feel now. I might take a life, aye, twenty, and I couldn't feel more miserable than I am. Then what is there to prevent me from working out my own will and doing what my father wishes? I may make myself worse and guiltier, but unhappier I cannot be. That poor weak hope was all I had in this world, but that is gone, and I have no other hope now. Compose yourself, dear Sarah, calm yourself, said Dalton. Don't call me, dear Sarah, she replied. You are wrong ever to do so. Oh, why was I born? And what has this world and this life been to me but hardship and sorrow? But still, she added, drawing herself up, I will let you all see what pride can do. I now know my fate and what I must suffer, and if one tear would gain your love, I wouldn't shed it. Never, never. Sarah, said Mary in a soothing voice, I hope you won't blame poor Con. You don't know, maybe, that himself and Mave Sullivan has loved one another ever since they were. No more about Mave Sullivan, she replied, almost fiercely. Leave her to me. As for me, I'll not break my word, either for good or evil. I was never the one to do an ungenerous, an ungenerous, no. She paused, however, as if struck by some latent conviction, and in a panting voice she added, I must leave you for a while, but I will be back in an hour or two. Oh, yes, I will. And in the meantime, Mary, anything that is to be done, you can do it for me till I come again. Mave Sullivan, Mave Sullivan, leave Mave Sullivan to me. She then threw a humble garment about her, and in a few minutes was on her way to have an interview with her father. On reaching home, she found that he had arrived only a few minutes before her, and to her surprise, he expressed something like good humor or perhaps gratification at her presence there. On looking into her face more closely, however, he had little trouble in perceiving that something extraordinary had disturbed her. He then glanced at Nelly, who, as usual, sat gloomily by the fire, knitting her brows and groaning with suppressed ill-temper, as she had been in the habit of doing ever since 
she suspected that donnel had made a certain disclosure connecting with her to sarah well said he has there been another battle have you been ding dust at it as usual what's wrong sally eh did it go to blows wid you for you look raised you're all out of it replied nelly her blood's up now and i'm not prepared for a sudden death she's dangerous this minute and i'll take care of her blessed man look at her eyes she repeated these words with that kind of low dogged ridicule and scorn which so frequently accompany stupid and wanton brutality and which are besides provoking almost beyond endurance when the mind is chafed by a consideration of an exciting nature sarah flew like lightning to the old knife which we have already mentioned and snatching it from the shelf of the dresser on which it lay exclaimed i have now no earthly thought nor any hope of good in this world to keep my hand from evil and for all ever you made me suffer take this her father had not yet sat down and it was indeed well that he had not for it required all his activity and strength united to intercept the meditated blow by seizing his daughter's arm sarah said he what is this are you mad you murdering jade to attempt the vagabond's life for she is a vagabond and an ill-tongued vagabond why do you provoke the girl by such language you double distilled old strap you do nothing but growl and snarl and curse and pray i pray from morning to night in such a way that the very devil himself could not bear you or live with you be gone out of this or i'll let her at you and i'll engage she'll give you what'll settle you nelly rose and putting her cloak went out i'm goin', she replied looking at and addressing the prophet and please god before long i'll have the best wish of my heart fulfilled by seeing you hanged but until then may my curse and the curse of god light on you and pursue you i know you have told her everything or she wouldn't act towards me as she has done of late sarah stood like the pythoness in a kind of savage beauty with the knife firmly grasped in her hand i'm glad she's gone she said but it's not her father that i ought to raise my hand against who then sarah he asked with something like surprise you asked me she proceeded to assist in a plan to have mave sullivan carried off by young dick of the grange i'm now ready for anything and i'll do it this world father has nothing good or happy in it for me now i'll be equal to it if it gives me nothing good it'll get nothing out of me i'll give it blow for blow kindness good fortune if it was to happen but it can't now would soften me but i know i feel that ill-treatment crosses disappointments and want of all hope in this life has made and will make me a devil ay and oh what a different girl i might be this day 
"'What has vexed you?' asked the father, "'for I see that something has.' "'Isn't it a cruel thing?' she proceeded, without seeming to have attended to him. "'Isn't it a cruel thing to think that every one you see about you has some happiness except yourself, and that your heart is bursting and your brain burning and no relief for you, no one point to turn to for consolation, but everything dark and dismal and fiery about you?' "'I feel all this myself,' said the prophet. So don't be disheartened, Sarah. In the course of time your heart will get so hardened that you'll laugh at the world. Aye, at all that's either bad or good in it, as I do. I never wish to come to that state, she replied, and you never feel what I feel. You never had that much of what was good in your heart. No, she proceeded. Sooner than come to that state, that is, to your state, i'd put this knife into my heart you father never loved one of your kind yet didn't i he replied while his eyes lightened into a glare like those of a provoked tiger i i loved one of your kind of your kind loved her i and was happy with her oh how happy ah sarah mcgowan and i loved my fellow-creatures then too like a fool as i was loved i loved and she that i so loved proved false to me proved an adulteress and i tell you now that it may harden your heart against the world that that woman my wife that i so loved and that so disgraced me was your mother it's a lie it's as false as the devil himself she replied turning round quickly and looking him with frantic vehemence of manner in the face my mother never did what you say she's now in her grave and can't speak for or defend herself but if i were to stand here till judgment day i'd say it was false you were misled or mistaken or your own bad suspicious nature made you do her wrong and even if it was true which it is not but false as hell why would you crash and wring her daughter's heart by a knowledge of it couldn't you let me get through the short but bitter passage of life that's before me without addin this to the other thoughts that's distracted me i did it as i said he replied to make you hearten your heart and to prevent you from putting any trust in the world or expectin anything either of truth or goodness from it she started as if some new light had broken in upon her and turning to him said maybe i understand you father i hope i do oh could it be that you were once a a a better man a man that had a heart for fellow-creatures and cared for them i'm looking into my own heart now and i don't doubt that i might be brought to the same state yet ha that's terrible to think of but again i can't believe it father you can stoop to lies and falsity that i could not do but no matter you were once a good man maybe am i right the prophet turned round and fixing his eyes upon his daughter they stood each gazing upon the other for some time he then looked for a moment into the ground after which he sat down upon a stool 
and covering his face with both his hands, remained in that position for two or three minutes. "'Am I right, father?' she repeated. He raised his eyes, and looking upon her with his usual composure, replied, "'No, you are wrong, you are very wrong. When I was a light-hearted, affectionate boy, playing with my brothers and sisters, I was a villain. When I grew into youth, Sarah, and thought every one full of honesty and truth and the world all kindness and nothing about me but goodness and generosity and affection, I was, of course, a villain. When I loved the rising sun, when I looked upon the stars of heaven with a wondering and happy heart, when the dawn of morning and the last light of the summer evening filled me with joy and made me love every one and everything about me, the trees, the running rivers, the green fields, and all that God, ha, what am I saying, I was a villain. When I loved and married your mother, and when she, but no matter, when all these things happened, I was, I say, a villain. But now that things is changed for the better, I am an honest man. Father, there is good in you yet, she said, as her eyes sparkled in the very depth of her excitement with a hopeful animation that had its source in a noble and exalted benevolence. You're not lost. Don't I say, he replied with a cold and bitter sneer, that I am an honest man? And, she replied, that's gone too, then. Look where I will. Everything's dark. No hope. No hope of any kind. But no matter now. Since I can't do better, I'll make them think of me, ay, and feel me too. Come then, what have you to say to me? Let us have a walk then, replied her father. There is a weeny glimpse of sunshine for a wonder. You look heated, your face is flushed too, very much, and the walk will cool you a little. I know my face is flushed, she replied, for I feel it burning, and so is my head. I have a pain in it and a pain in the small of my back, too. Well, come, he continued, and a walk will be of service to you. They then went out in the direction of the rabbit bank, the prophet, during their walk, availing himself of her evident excitement to draw from her the history of its origin. Such a task, indeed, was easily accomplished, for this singular creature, in whom love of truth, as well as detestation of all falsehood and subterfuge seemed to have been a moral instinct at once disclosed to him the state of her affections and indeed all that the reader already knows of her love for dalton and her rivalry with mave sullivan these circumstances were such precisely as he could have wished for and our readers need scarcely be told that he failed not to aggravate her jealousy of Mave, nor to suggest to her the necessity on her part, if she possessed either pride or spirit, to prevent her union with Dalton by every means in her power. I'll do it, she replied, I'll do it. To be sure I feel it's not right, and if I had one single hope in this world I'd scorn it. But I'm now desperate. I tried to be good, but I am only a cobweb before the wind. Everything is against me, and I think I'm like someone that never had a guardian angel to take 
care of them. The prophet then gave her a detailed account of their plan for carrying away Mave Sullivan and of his own subsequent intentions in life. We have more than one iron in the fire, he proceeded, and as soon as everything comes off right and to our wishes, we'll not lose a single hour in going to America. I didn't think, said Sarah, that Dalton ever murdered Sullivan till I heard him confess it. But I can well understand it now. He was hasty, father, and did it in a passion. But it's himself that has a good heart. Father, don't blame me for what I say, but I'd rather be that pious, affectionate old man with his murder on his head than you in the state you're in. And that's true. I must turn back and go to them. I'm too long away. Still something ails me. I'm all sickish, my head and back especially. Go home to your own place, he replied. Maybe it's the sickness you're taking. Oh, no, she replied. I felt this way once or twice before, and I know it'll go off me. Good-bye. Good-bye, Sarah, and remember, honor, bright, and secrecy. Secrecy, father, I grant you, but never honor bright for me again. It's the world that makes me do it, the wicked, dark, cruel world that has me as I am, without a living heart to love me. That's what makes me do it. They then separated, he pursuing his way to Dick of the Granges, and she to the miserable cabin of the Daltons. They had not gone far, however, when she returned, and calling after him, said, I have thought it over again, and won't promise altogether till I see you again. Are you going back on your word so soon? he asked, with a kind of sarcastic sneer. I thought you never broke your word, Sarah. She paused, and after looking about her as if in perplexity, she turned on her heel and proceeded in silence. Chapter 26 The Peddler Runs a Close Risk of the Stocks Nelly's suspicions, apparently well founded as they had been, were removed from the prophet, not so much by the disclosure to her and Sarah of his having been so long cognizant of Sullivan's murder by Dalton, as by that unhappy man's own confession of the crime. Still, in spite of all that had yet happened, she could not divest herself of an impression that something dark and guilty was associated with the tobacco-box an impression which was strengthened by her own recollections of certain incidents that occurred upon a particular night much about the time of Sullivan's disappearance. Her memory, however, being better as to facts than to time, was such as prevented her from determining whether the incidents alluded to had occurred previous to Sullivan's murder or afterwards. There remained, however, just enough of suspicion to torment her own mind without enabling her to arrive at any satisfactory conclusion as to Donald's positive guilt arising from the mysterious incidents in question. A kind of awakened conscience, too, resulting not from any principle of true repentance, but from superstitious alarm and a conviction that the prophet had communicated to Sarah a certain secret connected with her, 
which she dreaded so much to have known had for some time past rendered her whole life a singular compound of weak terror ill-temper gloom and a kind of conditional repentance which depended altogether upon the fact of her secret being known in this mood it was that she left the cabin as we have described i'm not fit to die she said to herself after she had gone and that's the second offer for my life she has made anyway it's the best of my play to leave them and above all to keep away from her that's the second attempt and i know to a certainty that if she makes a third one it'll do for me oh no doubt of that the third time's always the charm and into my heart that unlucky knife'll go if she ever tries it a third time they tell me she proceeded soliloquizing as she was in the habit of doing that the inquest is to be held in a day or two and that the crowner was only unwell a trifle and hadn't the sickness after all no matter not all the weather in the sky would clear my mind that there's not villainy joined with that tobacco box though where it could go or what could come of it barrin the devil himself or the fairies took it i don't know so far as concerned the coroner the rumour of his having caught the prevailing typhus was not founded on fact a short indisposition arising from a cold caught by a severe wetting but by no means of a serious or alarming nature was his only malady and when the day to which the inquest had been postponed had arrived he was sufficiently recovered to conduct that important investigation a very large crowd was assembled upon the occasion and a deep interest prevailed throughout that part of the country the circumstances however did not as it happened admit of any particular difficulty jerry sullivan and his friends attended as was their duty in order to give evidence touching the identity of the body this however was a matter of peculiar difficulty on disinterring the remains it was found that the clothes worn at the time of the murder had not been buried with them in other words that the body had been stripped of all but the undergarment previous to its internment the evidence nevertheless of the black prophet and of red roddy was conclusive the truth however of most if not of all the details but not of the fact itself was denied by old dalton who had sufficiently recovered from his illness to be present at the investigation the circumstances deposed to by the two witnesses were sufficiently strong and home to establish the fact against him although he impugned the details as we have stated but admitted that after a hard battle with weighty sticks he did kill sullivan with an unlucky blow and left him dead in a corner of the field for a short time near the grey stone he said that he did not bury the body but that he carried it soon afterwards from the field in which the unhappy crime had been committed to the roadside where he laid it for a time in order to procure assistance 
He said he then changed his mind, and having become afraid to communicate the unhappy accident to any of the neighbors, he fled in great terror across the adjoining mountains, where he wandered nearly frantic until the approach of daybreak the next morning. He then felt himself seized with an uncontrollable anxiety to return to the scene of the conflict, which he did, and found, not much to his surprise indeed, that the body had been removed, for he supposed at the time that Sullivan's friends must have brought it home. This, he declared, was the truth, neither more nor less, and he concluded by solemnly stating that he knew no more than the child unborn what had become of the body or how it disappeared. He also acknowledged that he was very much intoxicated at the time of the quarrel, and that, were it not for the shock he received by perceiving that the man was dead, he thought he would not have had anything beyond a confused and indistinct recollection of the circumstances at all. He admitted also that he had threatened Sullivan in the market, and followed him closely for the purpose of beating him, but maintained that the fatal blow was not given with an intention of taking his life. The fact, on the contrary, that the body had been privately buried and stripped before internment, was corroborated by the circumstance of Sullivan's body-coat having been found the next morning in a torn and bloody state, together with his great coat and hat. But indeed the impression upon the minds of many was that Dalton's aversion of the circumstances was got up for the purpose of giving to what was looked upon as a deliberate assassination the character of simple homicide or manslaughter, so as that he might escape the capital felony and come off triumphantly by a short imprisonment. The feeling against him, too, was strengthened and exasperated by the impetuous resentment with which he addressed himself to the prophet and Roddy Duncan, while giving their evidence, for it was not unreasonable to suppose that the man who, at his years and in such awful circumstances, could threaten the lives of the witnesses against him as he did, would not hesitate to commit, in a fit of that ungovernable passion that had made him remarkable through life, the very crime with which he stood charged through a similar act of blind and ferocious vengeance. Others, on the contrary, held different opinions, and thought that the old man's account of the matter was both simple and natural, and bore the stamp of sincerity and truth upon the very face of it. Jerry Sullivan only swore that, to the best of his opinion, the skeleton found was much about the size of what his brother's would be, but as the proof of his private internment by Dalton had been clearly established by the evidence of the prophet and Roddy, constituting as it did an unbroken chain of circumstances which nothing could resist, the jury had no hesitation in returning the following verdict. We find a verdict of willful murder against Cornelius Dalton, Sr., for that he, on or about the night of the 14th of December in the year of grace, 1798, did follow and waylay Bartholomew Sullivan, and 
deprive him of his life by blows and violence, having threatened him to the same effect in the early part of the aforesaid day. During the progress of the investigation, our friend the peddler and Charlie Hanlon were anxious and deeply attentive spectators. The former never kept his eyes off the prophet, but surveyed him with a face in which it was difficult to say whether the expression was one of calm conviction or astonishment. When the investigation had come to a close, he drew Hanlon aside and said, that swearin charley was too clear and if i was on the jury myself i would find the same verdict may the lord support the poor old man in the meantime for in spite of all that happened one can't help pitying him or at any rate his unfortunate family however see what comes by not having a curb over one's passions when the blood's up god's a just god replied hanlon the murderer deserves his punishment, and I hope will meet it. There is little doubt of it, said the peddler. The hand of God is in it all. That's more than I see or can at the present time, then, replied Hanlon. Why should my aunt stay away so long? But I dare say the truth is she is either sick or dead, and if that's the case, what's all you have said or done worth? You see, it's but a chance still. Trust in God, replied the peddler. That's all either of us can do or say now. There's the coffin. I'm told they're going to bury him, and to have the greatest funeral that ever was in the country. But God knows there's funerals enough in the neighborhood without their making a show of themselves with this. There's no truth in that report either, said Hanlon. I was speaking to Jerry Sullivan this morning, and I have it from him that they intend to bury him as quietly as they can. He's much changed from what he was, Jerry is, and doesn't wish to have the old man hanged at all if he can prevent it. Hanged or not, Charlie, I must go on with my petition to Dick of the Grange. Of course I have no chance, but maybe the Lord put something good into Travers's heart when he bid me bring it to him at any rate it can do no harm nor any earthly good replied the other the farm is this minute the property of darby skinadre and to my knowledge master dick has a good hundred pounds in his pocket for befriendin the mealmonger still and all charley i'll go to the father if it was only because the agent wishes it I promised I would, and who knows, at any rate, but he may do something for the poor Daltons himself when he finds that the villain that robbed and ruined them won't. So far you may be right, said Hanlon, and as you say, if it does no good, it can do no harm. But for my part, I can scarcely think of anything but my poor aunt. What in God's name, except sickness or death, can keep her away i don't know put your trust in god man that's my advice to you and a good one it is replied the other if we could only follow it up as we ought every one here wonders at the change that's come over me i that was so light and airy and so fond of every diversion that was to be had am now as grave as a parson but indeed no wonder for ever since that awful night at the Greystone 
since both nights indeed i'm not the same man and feel as if there was a weight come over me that nothing will remove unless we traced the murder and i hardly know what to say about it now that my aunt isn't forthcomin trust in god i tell you for as you live truth will come to light yet the conversation took various changes as they proceeded until they reached the grange where the first person they met was jemmy brannigan who addressed his old enemy the pedlar in that particularly dry and ironical tone which he was often in the habit of using when he wished to disguise a friendly act in an ungracious garb a method of granting favors by the way to which he was proverbially addicted in fact a surly answer from jimmy was as frequently indicative of his intention to serve you with his master as it was otherwise but so adroitly did he disguise his sentiments that no earthly penetration could develop them until proved by the result jimmy besides liked the pedlar at heart for his open honest scurrility a quality which he latterly found extremely beneficial to himself inasmuch as now that increasing infirmity had incapacitated his master from delivering much of the alternate abuse that took place between them he experienced great relief every moment from a fresh breathing with his rather eccentric opponent jimmy said hanlon is the master in the office is he in the office who wants him and as he put the query he accompanied it by a look of ineffable contempt at the pedlar your friend the pedlar wants him and so now added hanlon i leave you both to fight it out between you you're comin' wid your petition and a purty object you are goin' to look after a farm for a man that'll be hanged may god forbid this day amen he exclaimed in an undertone which the other could not hear and what can you expect but to get kicked out or put in the stocks for attempting to take a farm over another man's head what other man's head nobody has it yet ay has there a very decent respectable man has it by name one darby scanadra may he never warm his hungry nose in the same farm the miserable keot that he is this day he added in another soliloquy which escaped the pedlar a very honest man is darby scanadra so you may save yourself the trouble i say at any rate there's no harm in tryin worse than fail we can't and if we succeed it'll be good to come in for anything from the old scoundrel before the devil gets him jimmy gave him a look why what have you to say against the old boy sure it's not casting reflections on your own master you'd be oh not at all replied the pedlar especially when i'm expectin a favor from one of his servants truth he'll soon by all accounts have his hook in the old clip of the grange and after that some of his friends will soon follow him i wouldn't be meanin one jimmy brannigan oh dear no but it's a sure case that the black boy's intention to take the whole family by instalments and with respect to the servants to place them in their old situations faith you'll have a warm berth of it jimmy and well you deserve it 
why then you circulating vagabond replied jimmy if you weren't a close friend to him you'd not know his intentions so well don't let out on yourself man alive unless you have the face to be proud of your acquaintance which in truth is more than anyone barrin the same set could be of you well well retorted the pedlar sure blood alive as we're all of the same connection let us not quarrel now but serve another if we can go and tell the old blackguard i want to see him about business will i tell him you're itchy about the hawks eh however the truth is that they and he pointed to the stocks might be justice but no novelty to you the iron gathers is an ornament you often wore and will again please goodness truth and your ornament is one you'll never wear a second time the hemp collar will grace your neck yet but never mind you're leading a life to deserve it see now if i can speak a word with your master for a poor family why then to avoid your tongue i may as well tell you that himself master richard and darby sconadres in the office and if you can use the same blackguard tongue as well in a good cause as you can in a bad one it would be well for the poor creatures go in now and he added in another soliloquy may the lord prosper his virtuous endeavours the vagabond although all hope of that's past i doubt for hasn't sconadra the promise and master richard the bribe however who can tell so god prosper the vagabond i say again end of section twelve